what really makes the car is the provenance, the story, the everything that goes with them. I adore Hampton Court, everything about it. It's small, it's intimate, it's elegant, and also the variety of cars that you get. Cut my father open and he bleeds red, Catalina red. Give him a serial number and he'll tell you what car it is. The Chubb Interviews with Jody Kidd, brought to you by Chubb Insurance, expert insurers of your most valued possessions, established since 1882. Hello and welcome back to the latest episode of the Chubb Interviews. I'm Jody Kidd. So how has everyone been since our last podcast with the lockdown a bit less restrictive? I hope you've had a chance to get out and about. And if you're lucky enough to own a classic car, maybe even been out for a spin. If this is the first time you've tuned into the Chubb interviews, this series is all about passion for classic cars. We've been joined by an amazing array of guests from restorers to racers and to collectors. We want to explore the personal stories of the people who inhabit this wonderful world. And it's been great getting your feedback. We've had some lovely comments about the series, including your very own One Piece at a Time suggestions. If you're listening for the first time, our One Piece at a Time feature is all about our guests selecting one item from their car career that has a special meaning. Derek Bell chose the clock that he was given for winning his first ever race. Our restorer, Simon Thornley, chose an A-post from his Healy 100 that he restored. And we've had a really touching message from listener Andy Couchman, who sent us a photo of a gear lever knob from his 1988 Caterham 7 that he built with his late dad. He said his dad designed and made the gear knob using his own lathe. Andy said, every time I drive the car, every time I change gear, there's a little reminder of my dad and that time that we spent together on the car. It's a small item, but it is the most valuable part of the car and always will be. So thank you so much for sharing that, Andy, and sending the picture in. Now, before we introduce our guests, we really ought to let today's co-host get a word in. We're once again joined by the lovely James Elliott. James, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Jodie. And how are you? I'm really good, actually. Now, we've had some absolutely fabulous guests during this series, and today is no exception. I was reading this lady's biog, and I have to say it is nothing short of extraordinary. So how does this sound to you, James? She has a PhD in experimental physics studying at Oxford. She trained in ballet, is a tech entrepreneur, a qualified wine expert and a classic car judge at events across the world, including Pebble Beach. And that's not even half the story. So a very, very big welcome to Cece Muldoon. Hi. How are you? Very well, thank you. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I have to say, I just love your name as well, Cece Muldoon. <laughs> it sounds like a character from a movie. I mean, it's just brilliant. <laughs> Um, we all start the show with kind of like, where did your love of cars come from? Where was that first moment? So I grew up in a car obsessed family. My love of cars stems from my father primarily. But despite the fact that I grew up with them, it started getting into cars more in my late 20s and early 30s. So it was actually kind of a later thing for me. So growing up with them, it was an, it was something that 
was around me always. I have memories of my father sitting in a corner reading Hemmings or Cavallino <laughs> or <laughs> Sports Car Market, and he, he is a Ferrari nut. Cut my father open and he bleeds red, Cavallino red. Give him a serial number and he'll tell you what car it is. There's a, a huge list of people who have inspired my love for classic cars. It's not just been my father. He was the first one, but I grew up with a, a godfather who owns a racing team. I made so many really good friends in the car world who have been mentors and who have taught me to love every side of cars from design to racing to restoration. But yeah, the seed was with him and my father has, his, he has had the luck to have tutti frutti weird and wonderful collection of cars. He's had everything from a Ford Mustang to a uh, 250 GT Show base to an SS100 Jaguar. So he's had, or he has incredible cars. And yeah, some of my earliest memories are of being taken to car shows and races and on car rallies and of seeing him tinker with cars. And he even got me a little petrol driven Cobra when I was about five years old. Oh, incredible. <laughs> Um, and the lore has it that my mother was taken around in a mirror around a, for a couple of laps when she was quite heavily pregnant. Excellent. Maybe that's where it came from. So he's been entering cars in Concours for ages. I think um, his first love, my dad's first love of cars was actually hot rodding. Oh, wow. And he's never worked in the car industry. Uh, cars have always just been a joy for him. He did a little bit of informal racing in his day. His claim to fame in the car world is he won uh, a support race ahead of a Mexican Grand Prix in the 80s at, um, at Manuel Rodriguez, uh, the little mother, the GP circuit, bought this car in 78. It's been his dream car. You know, that race, I think, was his, his pinnacle moment. But yeah, as I say, for him, cars have always been, he says, they are a, a passport to uh, experiences. So they are a way to meet incredible people, to go to incredible places. Most of our very best friends have come from the car world, from having met them at, you know, events, at rallies and shows. So he's been doing that for a long time and he would definitely classify as a collector. When you were a little girl, you learnt how to restore the cars as well. So, so you're pretty good under the bonnet. So I didn't learn as a little girl. I learned much later. I actually joined a club when I came to graduate school. So I came to Oxford in, goodness, October 2006 to do a PhD. Uh, and I instantly joined a few clubs. I joined the wine club, the Beagling Society. Um, and then I, <laughs> as you do when you come to Oxford the first time. Um, and then I found a lovely club called the Oxford Universities, with an S, Motorsports Foundation. And they are a student society that exists to this day. They do very well. Uh, it's a shared club between Oxford University and Oxford Brookes University, who um, are also in the city of Oxford. Um, and Oxford Brookes actually has a proper automotive engineering degree. Oxford doesn't. And they try to give students a sort of a glimpse of what it's like working on classic cars, hands-on experience. And at the time, I went along the first time and all it was, and still is, is a barn just north of Oxford with no loo. <laughs> and, uh, you know, now, now it's a, bit, and a bunch of old broken cars. And um, at the time they had two Rileys, one that they used as a race car, one that they used as uh, a rally car. And the race car had an MGB engine in it. I remember going along the very first time. So, so as I say, I wasn't little. I'm talking 22, 23. Well, I guess that is little now. But um, uh, <laughs> um, I, I went along and, and, you know, we hauled this engine out of the car. And they said, okay, you're your job. You hold these little paper bags um, with a, they had a pen. And they said, um, 
take the parts, put them inside and label them. And I, I felt very emasculated and I said, excuse me, am I not going to do anything? Can I've, I've got a spanner in hand, can I not undo? And they said, no, you've got to learn what everything is first. And it, it was the most fascinating and humbling experience because all of a sudden I went, oh my goodness, the cars are so complex. They're so complicated. How in the world have we come up with this? And you start asking yourself all sorts of questions. And as, as a physicist, of course, this was, you know, like a kid in a candy shop. I couldn't stop thinking, why do we turn linear motion into circular motion? Why internal combustion engine? You know, this makes no sense. It should be circular. <laughs> and um, yeah, so that was my um, first foray into sort of restoration. So how handy are you now? How confident would you be if your Dino had, had a problem? Would you be straight in there fixing it? I'm confident, but with something like the Dino, I have to say, I leave it to Bob Houghton and go take the car to the, to the doctor. So you obviously own a Dino, which I have to say is my favourite, most beautiful fry, apart from the 250 short wheelbase, which you've also said yeah. that your dad owned. I'm like going uh. green with envy here. <laughs> but I mean, Dino, so you've got a Dino. They're so beautiful. Do you know what? <gasps> I, I said this yesterday and I'll say it again. It is my favourite Ferrari. I think the Dino, the lines on that car, it just doesn't have a bad angle. You can look at it from every direction and the car is absolutely gorgeous. And I am in love with the history. Um, I'm, I'm in love with the color of the car. I'm in love with how she drives and handles, you know, she's not, it's not a big engine, but when you're doing, you know, when you're on the motorway and you put your foot down, it's pretty incredible. Isn't it odd that the Dino is the car that your super snob Ferrari owners turn mm. their noses up at and say it's not yes. a real Ferrari? When yeah. I've always thought, in yeah. many ways, it is the perfect Ferrari. It is. Well, I think, you know, it represented um, a moment in history for Ferrari because, you know, old man and circumandatoria said that the cart should pull the horse. I mean, sorry, the, <laughs> the horse should pull the cart and not the other way around. You know, you shouldn't have... You shouldn't have the cart pulling the horse. So suddenly here we come along with this, you know, mid-engine sports car. And he, and you know, this was sort of sacrilege. Um, and it also, in terms of the engine itself, people don't um, often know that it was the evolution of, of a Grand Prix engine that had been, you know, a huge part of Ferrari's history in the 50s. So this had been the engine that was in the Formula 2 cars of the mid to late 50s and then the Formula 1 cars. Um, and, you know, that were driven by the likes of uh, Peter Collins and Mike Hawthorne and Olivia Gandipian and, you know, all the Luigi Musso and all these people. Um, and so for me, every time I, I get into this car, I think this engine behind me, and of course also, which was uh, conceived of by Alfredino, where the name comes from, um, by Enzo Ferrari's son, his brainchild essentially, I mean, of course, Vittoriano did the execution, but um, it's such a special part of history for the mark it adds to the enjoyment of the car for me. I've definitely noticed that they've become more and more popular over the last kind of five, 10 years though. So I think everyone is realizing what a special car it is and, and that it is incredibly beautiful. And you mentioned something about that you've got a, it's an interesting color. Can you talk about that? What color is it? Ooh, yes. <laughs> so um, the, the color is, uh, she's Viola Metallizzato, which um, was, is quite a unique color. I think there was 31 made. So she's a 246 GTS. So the later car and convertible. Yeah, she was originally that color. Uh, it's it's purple, essentially. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, she is uh, chairs, no flares. So, um, you know, there was a, a, a factory option, which was to get these um, flared arches and, and uh, Campagnola wheels and then the um, Daytona seats. And my car doesn't have uh, the flared arches and it does have the Daytona seats. And the Daytona seats, I must say, 
they make up a huge part of the enjoyment. Yes, they're beautiful. They're comfortable. They're just, yeah, it's fantastic. So um, yeah, the color is very special. It tends to look kind of dark blue in the evening and then very bright purple during the day. We touched on the Dino and you like vintage cars as well. Uh, yes. Um, I got exposed to uh, vintage cars here in the UK. My two best girlfriends in the whole wide world, both of them own vintage cars. Uh, so my friend Katie owns a 1912 Rolls Royce Silver Ghost oh, called Nelly. Beautiful. Oh, yes, that's a very like well-known expert. car. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so she was with me yesterday. And uh, my other very good girlfriend, Katerina Kivalova, who I'm sure you guys have heard of, uh, she's a Bentley Bell and she drives a four and a half liter Bentley like it's her, you know, like it's a modern Ferrari. It's incredible. You guys <laughs> must have looked so cool yesterday between you and your Dino and the other girls. Oh my God, what a convoy. One of the great, I feel, privileges of my job is that I get to go to Pebble Beach. Now, I was told you've been going since you were three years old. Is that right? Yes, I have a picture of it. <laughs> What is it about that event in particular? So there are many car shows in the world um, and they're all very different and they all have, you know, their, their unique personalities. But I think can't dispute that Pebble Beach for car aficionados and obviously now it's become Monterey Car Week. So there's lots of things that go on around it, but it is the premier car show in the world. Yeah, it's the creme um, de la creme. I, it's the creme de la creme. And I think the reason that is, is because it's been going for such a long time and it really has um, embraced very rigorous judging for the cars and you know that you don't see the caliber of cars that go to Pebble Beach and the caliber of restorations really anywhere else in the world. The standard of judging at Pebble Beach is, is also incomparable. It is a very different event than I remember it when I was little. When I was little you'd think about where to go to dinner on Saturday night and then on Sunday you'd come up and you'd have a can of beer and you'd sit on the <laughs> lawn <laughs> and now you you get there on monday and you're already you know going to an event that night there's events all week long the traffic is bumper to bumper and you you know you you, you pay 20 pounds for bloody mary on the lawn so sorry dollars sorry dollars despite that we're all going to miss it this year oh absolutely i mean especially being the you know pinumfrina anniversary that was we were all very much actually i was very much looking forward to it because I got an email earlier this year saying, would you like to, you know, we have three Ferrari classes this year because well, we've got the two M1 and M2, which are the racing Ferrari classes. And then we've got this Pininfarina class. Uh, would you like to come judge? And, you know, every time it's just, for me, it's, it's, it's such an honor. How do you judge those cars though? This is something I wanted to bring us on to is you tell us about, I know it, but I'd like you to share with the listeners you, how you got into being a Concorde judge and what that involves. Of course, yes. Yeah. So I remember the moment actually, I was sitting next to Glenn Munger who used to be head of judging at, at Pebble Beach. And uh, he, it was with my parents at an event. I think we might've been at Cavallino and and he said to me, he probably doesn't remember, but he said, uh, why don't you try your hand at judging? And I looked at him, I couldn't possibly do this. And then there was a whole host of people who very gradually uh, pulled me into that world. Um, Jody, I think you'll appreciate this one. One of them, Adolfo Orsi of Maserati fame, was one of my first mentors. And actually Adolfo, he invited me to judge at Ferrari 70th in 2017. That was probably sort of like watershed moment for me in, in the judging world because suddenly I, you know, I was in, in it dropped in the deep end, really. Uh, and being I was surrounded. Say, how do you prepare for that? You don't oh, just my, turn uh, up, slap on a screen, no, no, and off well, you go. Well, mind you, that time I was I was learning, and I think everyone around me was aware of it. 
um, you know, and, and, and I was a bit stunned. All of a sudden I'm looking around and going, my gosh, Nina Vaccarella and Leonardo Fioravanti, what, what's going on? And I, will, I shall never forget that Donovan Lydon, one of the um, old American judges came to me and he said, so you're in the 275 DTB class? And I said, yes. And he said, look, this is what you need to look out for. And so when you're looking at, at a car, if you look at the exhaust and you check whether it's correct, you already know, ah, okay, that's one point down. So he said, look for this. And he gave me a bunch of pointers. And I thought, oh my goodness, how am I ever going to learn all these things? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, it's, but so how do we, how do we prepare? Okay. First and foremost, I'm part of a group called the International Chief Judge Advisory Group. Um, I'm very proudly their director of public relations. And they're the type of judging that they employ, which is what I know of and what gets used at Pebble Beach. It promotes the preservation and the correct restoration of class cars. Of vehicles. So the proper preservation of a car. So there's there's two types of cars that you will get in a Concorde. You get cars that are in a preservation class, so they're untouched, and they'll be judged very, very differently from the cars that are restored. So restored cars. So a car is only ever original once, and that's when it leaves the factory. That car is original. So if you drive a car, if you ride a motorcycle, inevitably you will ding it, you will, you know, there are uh, consumable parts that will go, you'll need to replace oil filters and spark plugs, and that car is never going to be the same again. Many years down the line when a restoration takes place, what happens thereafter, that car is an interpretation of what that person believes it was like at the time, like what the authentic version of that car was. So as judges, we are looking to see that a car is preserved in, in a sensitive and, and a thoughtful way, but we're not looking for the original car. People think classic car judges are experts who are meant to know everything. No, not at all. We're there to enable a conversation, to facilitate what should be a long-term collaborative effort between owners, restorers, and judges to try to get the best interpretation of what that car was when it was born. What sort of scale of research? Because when you were talking about the exhausts, this sounds like months and months of work and preparation. Some car shows you do a little bit of, of research for. Say you'll get your cars a couple of weeks in advance. But my mark of um, you know, the mark that I focus on is, is Ferrari. I will do uh, inevitably a quick search online on Barchetta and I get a quick idea of the history of the car. Then you start looking for articles about the car. You need to know the model in general. And then once you once you dig in a bit deeper, you'll be looking for the build sheets for the car. You'll be looking for period photographs of the car. So this kind of background research happens. When it comes to Pebble Beach in particular, because you asked me about this before, and when it comes to particularly the M1 and M2 class of Pebble Beach, and I've always, I, I, I say this many times, there is only one class where the judging is really it's it's like nothing else for the ferrari class i mean we we got our cars in i think june last year and we had months to learn about the for me learn about them and this was a, a conversation between a lot of people it wasn't just the judging team we were consulting with restorers so we had people like paul russell and and david cart and patrick otis and you know contributing to our research and by the time that we went to pebble beach i flew with four binders, you know, the, the size of textbooks full of notes on these cars. Now, I must emphasize something. We're not prejudging the cars. We don't arrive on the show field and go, right, okay, I know which one's going to win. You must appreciate the judging a car, you've got supposedly 20 minutes. You get allotted 12 minutes for a car. 
you walk out there, you're on the field, you know, by now, you know, everyone, everyone's coming to say hello to you. Everyone wants to talk to you. The owner is, is super scared. The restorer is, is, is panicking. It's really challenging, actually. So you're carrying your clipboard. You've got to make these notes quickly. You've got to be discreet. So the way we do it, we do division of labor because you were asking me, how do you rule with your head and not with your heart? So the team of three, one person gets assigned to interior, one person gets assigned to exterior, and one person gets assigned to engine compartment and chassis. And each of us has a sheet. So there's judging guidelines where you get indications of how many points should be taken off for different things. One of the things that they promote, and this is the same with, um, you know, the, the Ferrari judging at Cavallino, ICPFA, and all the proper judging, is if you note that something is wrong, there should be an SB next to it, which indicates should be and you should be as a judge able to say what it should be if you say it's wrong then you but okay so so you look at it and you go uh you know that air pan should have been painted black satin black instead of crinkle but whatever you must be able to say what should it be you're very constrained you're constrained into the things that you can take points off for you're guided through the whole thing you walk away from the car together once you've and you let one very important thing you let the owner tell you as much as they possibly can about the car because at the end of the day you must be humble and understand that you know much less than that owner or that restorer that is sitting there so you listen to them you walk away from the car you make sure that you've noted down as much as possible and then later you go back in a room and you go over the notes together so it's quite you know a, a rigorous process it's horrible for the owners isn't it Oh, well, I mean, I've been on the other side of this. We own a very weird and wonderful um, Ferrari, which uh, very controversially has a vinyl roof. Oh, wow. And we, yes. Yeah, so, and I mean, this car has won, mind you, every event. It's won, you know, at Villa d'Este, at Emilia Island, at Ferrari Nationals. It's won at Hampton Court. Is that because it is unique? It's, it is. I believe a car's significance exists only in your imagination. At the end of the day, as sophisticated as it can be, it is a piece of metal. And what really makes the cars, in my opinion, is the provenance, the story, the everything that goes with them. And in the case of this particular car, it's a one-off Ferrari. It was commissioned by Princess Liliane de Retti, who was the wife of King Leopold of Belgium. Uh, it was one of five cars they commissioned from Ferrari, and it was the last car ever bodied by Vignale for Ferrari. Um, so Ferrari used to use many designers back in the day. They would use Scaglietti, they would use Ghia, they'd use Elena Buonan, and eventually they settled on Pininfarina for reasons of scale. And this particular car body by Vignale was the very last one. I think because of this, and because it was a, a commission, a one-off commission by a, a female as well, it has all sorts of weird and wonderful. So it's got this sort of wraparound Corvette windscreen. It's got kind of almost a start of tail fins. It's got these beautiful side vents. It's got a vinyl roof. So it's a very, very dark green that looks almost black with this very light tan cream roof. Most amazingly of all, it has a hole in the dashboard, which has always been painted. And we know it wasn't a hole for a clock. We did extensive research on this and it appears in all the pictures because obviously this car was greatly photographed at the time. I have a great story now of actually meeting Princess Leia, who's the wife of Liliane de, de Retti's son, Alexander. Um, and even she couldn't say what this hole was for. And we've always posited that it's either it was for her handbag or it's about the size of a bottle of champagne. Oh, I love <laughs> so that. We usually <laughs> we show the car with a bottle of champagne inside. Coming back to the judging with this car, just to answer your question about being on the other side, we showed this car 
before it went to all those other Concours and won, we showed it at Pebble Beach. Rest in peace, Wayne Obrey, who's a fantastic restorer in the US, a company called Motion Products in Wisconsin, who still restore cars for us, uh, was there with the car and, you know, we had researched it extensively and the restoration uh, had taken years and years and and we show this car and the, suddenly we get told that um, we get second place because the roof would not have been originally vinyl. And we said, well, we've got the pictures. And they said, well, you can't prove from the pictures that this roof was vinyl. And it took years thereafter to, to get, you know, build sheets. And it, it's a labor of love on the side of the owner as well. You know, the, the lengths and that we had to go to to acquire, you know, we now have the original concept drawings for the car, the build sheets, everything. But to get to that stage where it could be approved, it took a lot of work. Do you think that makes you more sympathetic as a judge? Oh, hugely so. Hugely so. I'm very sympathetic to them, yeah. We're talking about all this judging, Cece, and of course very little of it is going on at the moment. I noticed that you have recently joined the steering committee for the Concours of Elegance at Hampton Court, is that right? Which, of course, is sponsored by Chubb. How's that going? Because it's set for 4th to 6th of September, I think. Everything going ahead? Yes, fingers crossed we are actually going to go ahead. So um, oh, I, it will be very interesting. Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. I think it will be very interesting because it will be one of the first events to uh, reopen and to happen again. Um, but so far, everything is going as planned. Um, of course, there will be you know different measures in place and we'll have to shuffle around some of the hospitality a little bit. There is usually a, a beautiful, wonderful uh, lunch in a tent um, if you've ever been before for the owners and obviously we won't be able to have exactly the same experience around a table but I mean things are changing so quickly at the moment with the guidelines coming from the government that we're still very much in a fluid state. Before lockdown we had almost all our cars already. So Can you reveal amazing. what some of the classes and cars are? No I'm not <laughs> sure I'm allowed to. Oh. <laughs> Can you tell me some special memories around being in Hampton Court? I adore Hampton Court because I think it is a very different event from many of the other Concours in the sense that it truly is for the entrance. It is a completely non-commercial, entrant-focused experience and everything about it, it's it's small, it's intimate, it's elegant, um, I mean, fabulous cars and also the variety of cars that you get. We don't have traditional judging in the way of uh, so very rigorous judging and we have done that very much on purpose. So we have decided to not go down the route of the strict concours judging a la um, Pebble Beach. I actually think that sets the show apart because a lot of these concours, they use the word elegance in the title, but they're not really in concours of elegance, they're a concours of authenticity and, and restoration. And I think in this case, it truly is, you know, the, the owners themselves, the entrants vote for the best of show. And I think that's a really lovely and different way to do things. So it's it's one of my favourite events, and the setting is obviously incomparable. So as well. beautiful. What car did you take up in two thousand and seventeen? So we first went as entrance with a three seventy five America baby blue and white three seventy five America, beautiful. which I'm actually looking at at the moment on the Hampton Court Palace poster from twenty seventeen, which is in oh, my office. Oh, lovely! So, yeah. And how did you get on? <laughs> we had a lovely time. I think we had a bit of rain that year, but um, I made many friends actually who remain to this day. And actually, I, I, last year I got invited to judge the club trophy by my friend Peter Reed, so the RAC club trophy. 
Um, and then this year, um, my friend Gregor said, do you want to be on the steering committee with us? And and I said, I'd be delighted to. And I must say, I was very highly impressed at how how organized they were and how quickly we got all our cars. I'm so looking forward to it. And I think, you know, because most of this year has been cancelled, I think there's going to be an amazing turnout because I think people are going to be so excited to go and see cars. Cece, you also, well, when I did your intro, because we've heard all of this from, from fixing cars and, you know, understanding them underneath the bonnet, racing them, but you wanted to be a ballet dancer originally. It was my first love and uh, I trained to be a professional and I was on my way to doing that. Um, I, you know, went to uh, Paris Opera Ballet. My heart was set on it. My father decided uh, around the time I was about 14 that probably it, it wouldn't be the right career choice for me. I was very cross with him at the time because yeah, he sent me to boarding school. Right. <laughs> he sent me to a very, very academic boarding school. Um, and, um, you know, ballet took a, a back seat for me, um, which obviously I'm very grateful for now, um, many years later, because I think um, I was I was good, but I wasn't a prodigy. And I think, you know, the career of any athlete or, or dancer is a, is a really tough one because you've got a, a limited use by date and then you have to find something else to do. But ballet has remained in my life. I still dance to this day. Um, I still performed on point up until 2017, the last time. It's something that it's... I, I couldn't decide what I'm happier doing, whether dancing or driving. I just have this wonderful picture of my head of this beautiful kind of ballet dancer with a wrench. And <laughs> um, I just think it's just such a wonderful combination. I mean, it couldn't be any different. Um, well, actually, you say that, but I think there is a huge amount of commonality between cars, ballet, even blind tasting, which is another one of the activities I like. I think, um, I mean, these are all kind of multifaceted pursuits, right? So they're multidimensional experiences. A car is, it's a piece of history. It's uh, highly cerebral on some levels. And then it, uh, driving a car is, it's hugely about uh, the, the oral and the visual um, sensations, you know, to drive a car, you, you know, you, you engage so many of your senses and you need balance. But, and ballet is the same thing. You've got balance, you've got coordination, it's practice. It's, so I think in terms of the experience itself, there are a great number of parallels between dancing and driving, for example, but also on the level of telling a story, you know, so, so as a dancer, you, you tell a story, you have to, um, in, in, you're interpreting a character, you're doing a, you know, a, a representation. And when, when you see a car, a classic car kind of has the same element to it. It's yeah, got, it's got it. a story. Going back to your dad and in keeping for Father's Day, what do you think is the most important thing that your dad did for you or say to you or that you learned from him? Uh, hands down an education, hands down the most important thing he's done for me. I think I actually get quite emotional. My, my, my dad has never treated me like a little girl. He's never treated me like a girl or a boy. In fact, he often says to me that if he were not my father, he'd still he'd still be my friend. Mm. Um, he'd love to oh, be my friend. <laughs> yeah. This is this decision you resented when you were fourteen, when he sent you off to mm. this this boarding school, was actually yeah. the thing that you're now most grateful for. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. I think he encouraged me in a way. You know, I came from Mexico when I was growing up, so I'm I'm old enough that you know, I grew up in the late eighties, early nineties, and it wasn't um, renowned for its educational system. Um, and, you know, most girls from my generation got married and had kids by the age of 20. Most of my friends have grown up children. 
And my father took me out of this incredibly conservative Catholic society, um, sent me to school abroad, dropped me in the deep end. You know, it's another language, you know. Um, and from a very young age, they encouraged me. I, I speak five languages, and to this day, it helps me at work. It helps me with, and this was their doing. They encouraged me. They, you know, just always, always gave me the chance. Um, and I think that's the, you know, the most important thing you could give your, your children is, is an education by far. Talking of that education, is it true that you were actually at school with Mark Zuckerberg? I was indeed, yes. Um, Mark Zuckerberg was in my, um, he was in my physics class. And um, I, I will tell you one thing. People often ask me, what was Mark Zuckerberg like? And I told them, I couldn't tell you because he was completely unremarkable. <laughs> Really? <laughs> so I, yes, he was friends with my first ever boyfriend. And I remember my boyfriend saying when we, when we graduated, oh, he's doing this thing called Facebook. We should invest in that and Google. And I thought, <laughs> you know, I thought, what, what is he on about? This, it's like our paper Facebook that we have, you know, just put online. I don't see the point. Um, oh my and, goodness. Uh, yes. Kicking so, yourself so, now. And, uh, kicking it. myself. <laughs> and I remember actually my godfather as well at graduation saying we should collect signatures of all the kids graduating from this boarding school because uh, one day some of them will be famous. And um, yeah, so he lay, I, but I then went on to Princeton, he went to Harvard and I never, never heard of him again. Now, Cece, um, in this podcast series, we run a special theme called One Piece at a Time. So we're asking all of our guests to select one prized possession to bring to the podcast. And at the end of the series, we'll have a beautiful collection. It could be a bit of a car, a photograph, an artifact, a piece of car memorabilia, or something that has special meaning to you. So we're all dying to know what is your one piece? I would say, oh gosh, that's a tough one. Um, I've got a key ring that has two special objects on it. One is a lens mount that I designed uh, in CAD during my PhD that was meant to go inside a vacuum chamber and have a bunch of lasers go through bits of it. It held a lens over a mirror. And when it went into the vacuum chamber, I realized that the lasers clipped on various sides of it. So I took a Dremel tool to it basically carved away at the material. <laughs> wow. And so thereafter, this thing sat in this vacuum chamber and what I saw on the computer screen for four years of my life in a you know dark, cold laser lab with no windows was something that looked like a grotto because of the eaten away bits that had gone to the Dremel tool. And that, so a version of that hangs on a keychain. And the second object that hangs on that keychain is my father's um, Shoho base keychain that has, it's the, the enamel has melted and chipped away. And you can still see clearly that it's an original Ferrari keychain, um, but it's sort of mangled and, you know, it was passed on to me and, and I, I carry it on my, on my daily driver's keys, so <laughs> keychain. So I would say that because it comes from my father. Will you be able to take a picture and maybe tweet it and we'll put it on our Instagram? Of course. Well, yeah, definitely. Um, Cece, it's just been amazing. I mean, literally, I just want to talk to you forever. <laughs> so, so interesting, especially when you started getting into the judging. And I mean, what an extraordinary life, really. Thank you so much for sharing a little bit of your life. And, and oh, it's been really you. very, very special. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you for interviewing me. It's an absolute pleasure. You know, when you just speak to people, you just go, I want to be your friend. I mean, she is so cool. What a woman. I feel I should be going back into full-time education and learning <laughs> some stuff. What a wonderful lady. I look forward to Hampton Court and meeting her, that's for sure. 
Right, so getting back to our one piece at a time, we would love for you to share your own pictures on Instagram and Facebook and also on email. James, will you give out the addresses for our lovely listeners to send us all their stories and nominate their favourite pieces? Absolutely. On Facebook or Instagram, just search for Chubb. That's C-H-U-B-B, collector car. Or for email, classic cars, all one word, at chubb.com. Or browse chubb.com slash the interviews. Jamesy, thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening to the latest podcast in the Chubb interview series, brought to you by Chubb, who share our passion for classic cars. Wherever you're listening around the world, we wish you well and we're sending you lots of love. There'll be another episode very soon and to receive every episode as it's released, please subscribe on your favourite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, please review and spread the word. And don't forget to send us your stories about your most loved classics. Until next time, bye. The Chubb Interviews with Jody Kidd. Brought to you by Chubb Insurance. Expert insurers of your most valued possessions. Established since 1882.